Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you all for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Another day in quarantine times. Yes, true. You've been cleaning the apartment today. Yeah, I have had a rough couple of days. Mm Mm-hmm. And today I actually have energy. Yeah. So I cleaned the apartment. Yeah, got to use that energy when it's there, for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How are you? I'm doing good. It's uh, been a busy few days for me. Um, I don't really understand how I'm more busy now than I was before coronavirus, but it seems to be the case. So I've been working a lot, and I'm happy to be here now to do this episode with you. I'm also happy you are here now. (laughs) In general? In general. That's good. And also doing the show. I mentioned uh, a week or so ago that I guested on a podcast called Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine, where um, a machine kidnapped me and forced me to discuss with them the 1999 The Mummy, a.k.a. one of the best movies ever, So uh, you can listen to that episode. It's coming out this Friday, and uh, it would be cool if you checked it out. Uh, We'll link it on our Twitter pages, but you can also find them at KD versus TM on social media and uh, your podcast app of choice. Friday, May 8th is this Friday when that episode drops. Yeah. Well, um, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah. We've had some, like... Very notable ones. Yes. Um, last week we had Bride of the Gorilla, so less notable. Yeah. Uh, what What is today? Today, Sarah, we're sort of continuing in the more traditional horror vein with The Son of Dr. Jekyll okay. from 1951, directed by Seymour Friedman. So I'm presuming yeah. that this is like a continuation mm-hmm. of... Robert Louis Stevenson's book in some sort of way. Like, you know, like a sequel or whatever, right? Yeah, like, it's, what, it's... What did the Phantom's Kid get up to? Right. It's a sequel to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but it's not a sequel to any particular version mm. of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think it gets associated with the Spencer Tracy version because I think the Mr. Hyde makeup is similar, but... It's from Columbia Pictures, for one thing, which is not a studio that did any of the previous Jekyll and Hydes. Um, But also, Dr. Jekyll did not have a kid. Yep. Or even a wife. He didn't even have a... You don't need a wife to have kids. Fair. He didn't even have a love interest in the novel. Yes. Um, And then his love interest, once introduced as a character, has always, like, consistently been a fiancé. And things have always gone downhill very dramatically before... They could bone. Right, exactly. To put it delicately. (laughs) Right. I mean, that was almost like the point of the 1931 version. Exactly. And sort of an implicit point in the 1941 version. So, yes, it's a sequel to Jekyll and Hyde, but it's not a sequel to any particular specific version of Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I think the release of this film, though can, like Bride of the Gorilla, be traced to the success 
that Real Art Pictures was having with their re-releases of old Universal horror movies. That would make sense. Um, even though Universal hasn't really done a Jekyll and Hyde. No, in fact, they won't do their own version of Jekyll and Hyde until 1953, and even then, it's not something we'll probably be covering on the list, because it's Abbott and Costello meet Jekyll and Hyde, oh. with Boris Karloff as Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, it's work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess my other question is, you, you mentioned that Hyde is in this movie. Uh-huh. But... In all of the adaptations and in the original novel, yeah. Jekyll and therefore Hyde die. Right. But then there's also a moment of like, well, if this is the son of Jekyll, mm-hmm. d- does does the transformation continue? D- does the son inherit the father's sins? We'll have to find out by watching the movie. Sure. That is fair. Yeah. So, as we've already alluded to, this is not our first rodeo with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Why don't we give a brief sort of overview of the of our past bouts of where we've come before? Yes. Our very first Jekyll and Hyde film was in 1912 uh with Lucius Henderson as the director. We covered it back in episode 1 because mm-hmm. it's a short film. It is currently ranked number 115. Now, nothing of super big note to mention with this. Um, they do adapt the novel into, like, a one-reel short, so they smush a lot of the uh, the story beats. Um, but notably, he drinks poison at the end. Yeah, and it takes the love interest from the play. That's the one where the love interest is the daughter of, like, a, like a the pastor. Ta- a pastor. Yeah. yeah. And the love interest came in with the play adaptation. There was a second Jekyll and Hyde film in 1913. It's another short. It stars King Baggett. That's right. And um, was directed by Herbert Brennan, again covered in episode one, currently ranked the lowest of all of these, at number 137. Oh, you know, I do have to correct myself, because that was a universal picture. Before Universal was Universal, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was a Carl Emley production, so... I I do have to correct myself about Universal having not done a Jekyll and Hyde. I guess technically these are all Jekyll and Hydes, too. Yes. Um, So, Jekyll and Hyde, 1913. um, That was the first kind of really big emphasis on Jekyll being a paragon of virtue and Hyde being, like, the son of the devil kind of, like, morality division going on there. We see that continued in the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde, directed by John Robertson and starring John Barrymore. Mm-hmm. We covered that in episode 6. It's currently ranked at number 104. And what's neat with this one is we see a bit more of a monstrous appearance for Hyde. Mm-hmm. It's no longer like kind of a dirty looking guy or like an ugly looking guy. Um, this Hyde has a pointed head that gets gradually more, like, elongated Mm -hmm. uh, as he gets more, like, into the poison, down with the sickness. Sure. Um, His features get more monstrous as the the movie goes on. In the 1921 is also when we have the dual love interest for Hyde from, like, the musical. Yes. Um, 
That's continued into the 1931 version, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, currently ranked at number one on the list. Still. What episode was that? So that's episode 27, (laughs) and it's 1931, so we're 20 years later. 20 years later, and uh, what, 130 episodes or so? Yeah, exactly. Still number one. So that's directed by Ruben Mamoulian, and has Frederick March as the titular characters. Um, now, his features when he's Hyde are more Simeon-like, while the 1920 version had themes around um, alcohol addiction. Yeah. Um, 1931 changes these themes to be around really wanting to bone. Yeah, sexual repression. Exactly. Um, and it's a pre-code film, so they get a little racy with things, um, or at least racier than they would be able to do after the code. Mm-hmm. And his demise comes with being shot at the end. Yeah. In the 1920 version, uh, he takes poison. Yes. Now, ten years after that, we have 1941's Jekyll and Hyde, (laughs) um, starring Spencer Tracy, who can be credited with making it Jekyll and Hyde instead of Jekyll and Hyde. And this is directed by Victor Fleming. We covered it in episode 87, and it currently ranks at number 36. So that's second highest. Mm-hmm. Um, notably higher than the others, but also notably lower than the <laughs> number one at the list. Um, so they continue this idea of like the good and bad girl, as well as the, or at least attempting to continue the sexual themes. But because this film comes out post-code, it has to rely on symbolism and a dreamlike Carl Jungian uh, inspired sequences yeah. in order to get that across. Uh, so it's a little weird. But whatever. You know, they're trying. They're <laughs> trying to do something neat. Also kind of interesting with the Spencer Tracy version is Hyde's appearance is less like monstrous. It's yeah. more like an ugly guy who gets like a little uglier, so his features are still exacerbated by the end. Um, but he doesn't look like an ape man, and he doesn't look like a weird insect man. Yeah, he looks still human. Yeah. yeah. Also notable with the 1941 version, um, because they are having to muddle the sexual themes, or sexual repression themes, um, they also bring in uh, the idea of, like, science has gone too far. Right. Which had never really been as big of an issue in previous versions. Yeah. That's more like relying on past tropes inspired by Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So that's 1941. We're now 10 years later after that. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, right? That like it's been like 10 years, 10 year intervals for Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, since like take. Yeah, since like the John Barrymore version. That's That's kind of interesting. Yeah. We say this frequently, but if anyone's like, Hollywood today isn't original, yeah. just like look at them and be like, it's always been like that, bud. Yeah. Chill I am... out. Just enjoy the shit. I don't know for sure, but now I'm like looking forward to what I can only presume will be a 1961 version of Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> As I mentioned briefly earlier, uh, this is coming to us from Columbia. And the last picture from Columbia we saw was Cry of the Werewolf back in 1944. That was um, 
uh, it's like a lady werewolf, but she's literally turning into a wolf, and it's kind of based on, like, Roma myths, yeah. and they're based in, like, the uh, American South. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a while since we've seen a Columbia picture. The back half of the 1940s had been very kind to Columbia pictures. The popularity of their breakout star, Rita Hayworth, mm. saw the studio making enough money to start affording the occasional Technicolor film. Dang. And the government's antitrust crackdown on Hollywood's vertical integration actually benefited Columbia. Because, you see, Columbia Pictures had never owned any theaters. Now that the big studios had to divest themselves of their exhibition arms, it meant that Columbia was now on the same level mm-hmm. as the major studios. There wasn't really much distinguishing them anymore. And, in fact, Columbia managed to soon outpace RKO due to that company's financial struggles, which would make Columbia the fifth largest studio Behind, you know, Paramount, behind, you know, MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and Fox. Good for them. This strong economic position enabled Columbia to keep its B-movie division and produce cheap genre films, movie serials, and comedy shorts long after the other studios had abandoned those types of films. Yeah, that's really unique that they're continuing with it. Yeah. Um, simply because they, they still have the money to do it. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for them to stop. Um, with their comedy shorts, you know, they're still cranking out Three Stooges movies. Um, Which are probably pretty popular. Yeah, and have been consistently for 20 years at this point. So because of that, you know, they're still doing their movie serials. Like 1949, 1950 would see the Superman movie serials from Columbia. Um And they're still doing B-movies, which is how we get to where we are here with Son of Dr. Jekyll. Now, this movie has its genesis in two writers hanging out and shooting the shit. Okay. Hey, uh, what do you think would happen if Jekyll had a son? Well, so the two writers in question are Jack Pollocksfin, who was the reporter-turned-writer who had co-written The Man from Planet X. Yeah, and uh, Mortimer Browse, who was a small-time writer uh, who worked for Columbia's Beehive. That's what they <laughs> called the B-movie division. Um, although he, he only had six credits to his name at this point, dating back to 1938. Which okay. is not a great record for a writer of B-movies. So it's more like he's dabbling. Yes. So these two men were hanging... Are you a writer? No, I'm more of a dabbler. <laughs> These two men were hanging out and drinking, and the topic that they were talking about was basically, like, ridiculous movie titles. Like, they were coming up with, like, <laughs> silly movie titles for fun. Sure. That they just thought would were, like, hilariously goofy. And they hit upon the son of Dr. Jekyll. And as they started, like, riffing on this idea and on, like, the potential plot of, like, this silly, wacky movie, they suddenly realized they actually might have a good idea here. (laughs) So they brought their idea to producer Charles R. Rogers, who at that time hadn't worked in three years. Ooh, that's, uh, that's not a good sign for a producer. (laughs) 
Rogers had started as a film producer in the 1920s, uh, after initially getting his start in the industry in distribution. He worked for Warner Brothers at the dawn of sound, and also RKO and Paramount in the early 1930s. When Universal Pictures was purchased by Standard Capital after the Lemleys defaulted on their loans, Rogers was put in charge of production. Uh, So he was the executive in charge of production at Universal in this new era. Rogers shepherded Universal back to profitability and increased their output by 33%. In 1937, Rogers brought his former colleague Nate J. Bloomberg from RKO to Universal to serve as studio president. But Rogers soon felt as though his authority as head of production was being undermined because Standard Capital Chairman J. Cheever Cowden came to prefer working with Bloomberg to working with Rogers. So Rogers called a meeting of the board in order to determine who ran Universal, him or Bloomberg. I remember this coming up. Yeah. And it totally backfires. Yeah, Rogers walked out of that meeting no longer a Universal employee. Ooh. I mean, like, good on him for, like, getting the cards laid down on the table. But on the same hand, you, you could have just kept coasting. Right. You could have just kept having your job be, like, finding a way to swing that into something better at a different studio. So Rogers, uh, after that, bounced from Paramount to Columbia before settling at United Artists as an independent producer through the 1940s. In 1947, Rogers decided to take a break and step away from the industry, a period which lasted three years when he was approached by Pollocksven and Browse with their idea for The Son of Dr. Jekyll. So this is a get back in the game. Yeah. Make your comeback. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And especially because you'd be working with one of the writers of supremely successful B-movie Man from Planet X, Pollockson. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So Rogers bought their story, and he brought the picture over to Columbia. Columbia bought the story from Rogers, and the film was announced as the producer's big comeback. The studio assigned Edward Hubsch to write the shooting script, and journeyman director Seymour Friedman to direct. What do you mean by journeyman? Um, basically, Friedman was a guy who just, you know, worked for Columbia and directed the movies he was assigned to and just punched in and out every day. Okay. Um, the shoot was scheduled for three weeks, and one-time matinee idol Lewis Hayward was cast as both Jekyll and his son. Um, Okay. Well, tell me more about him so I have an idea of, like, what his age is and whether they are aging him up or aging him down. So Lewis Hayward was born in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1909. So so they're aging him down. Yeah. Uh, Oh, no. He began his acting career appearing on stage in London in the mid-1920s. He appeared in the original West End version of Dracula. Oh, neat. As who? Uh, Harker. Okay. In the early 1930s, he appeared in some British films before coming to Broadway in 1935 to appear in the Noel Coward play Point Valaine. That play was a huge flop, but Hayward got a contract with MGM, and then from there he would bounce to Universal and then RKO. At RKO, he would become the first actor to portray The Saint in 1938's The Saint in New York, though he would be replaced by George Sanders starting with the second film. Hayward would return to the role for the ninth film, 
1953's The Saint Returns. Sure. He played the title roles in 1939's The Man in the Iron Mask. Oh. He fought in World War II with the United States Marine Corps, and he continued to appear in various swashbucklers in the 1940s. That was kind of like his bread and butter genre, was being basically the handsome swashbuckling hero. So a little bit of Errol Flynn. Yeah, poor man's Errol Flynn. Yeah. Son of Dr. Jekyll was a chance for Hayward to kind of do something different from his typical heroic roles, which is ironically the same reason why John Barrymore and Frederick March did their versions. Yeah, for both of them, it was more to step away from the, like, handsome, uh, like, romantic comedy kind of Yeah. But in all film. Yes, but in all three cases, they were all considered to be like pretty boy, handsome, idol types. Yeah. The film's female lead is Jodie Lawrence, uh, who was a young actress near the start of her career at this point. She was born Nona Josephine Lawrence Goddard in Texas in 1930. But her father, Doc Goddard, remarried in 1935, and the family moved to Van Nuys, California. Her new stepmother, Grace, had a foster daughter, Norma Jean Baker, who was four years older than Josephine, and who you probably know better by her stage name later in life, Marilyn Monroe. Oh, dang, that's why her name was so familiar. Yeah. So Norma Jean would get um, molested by Josephine's father, Doc, through her early teen years, and she would leave the family in 1942 by getting married at age 16 to their next-door neighbor's kid. Josephine, meanwhile, uh, attended high school at, uh, I think, Beverly Hills, and then later attended acting school at the Hollywood Professional School, and then adopted the screen name Jody Lawrence in 1949. She was picked up to a seven-year contract with Columbia at $250 a week, and Son of Dr. Jekyll was her fourth film with the studio. She was kind of well on her way to becoming a star at this point, but her fifth film was a musical, and Jodie felt that she didn't have a very strong voice, so she asked for Columbia to replace her. The studio refused made her do the movie anyway, and then dropped her from her contract for being difficult. Wow. She ended up uh, waiting tables after this until she was discovered by her co-star from her third film, Burt Lancaster, who asked her, what's movie star Jodie Lawrence doing waiting tables, and got her a contract with Paramount. Nice. Now, her career was once again taking off, when Paramount discovered that she was pregnant with her first child and had been married secretly for a year to an airplane company executive named Bert Tilton. And so Paramount released her from her contract. This was the studio era where they felt they had the power to dictate an actor's life. Yeah, everything about your life. And especially for an actress, being pregnant was seen as a career liability because, you know... Your body changes. Well, for, for nine months, you're just not usable, practically. And then you, you know... Well, okay, what's she going to be like with the kid now? Is she going to want time off? Is she going to, you know, blah, 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 right? Now, things between 
Lawrence and Tilton were very rocky because she couldn't decide between career and family. Um, so she would try to do work. He wanted her at home. Ultimately, uh, she divorced him and lost custody of her daughter because she wanted to act on television. She did that for several years, and then in the mid-1960s, she met and fell in love with outdoorsman Bob Hare. And the two (laughs) got married, and they had two kids, and Jody retired to a life of golf, camping trips, and fishing trips. Well, I'm happy she had kind of a happy ending. Yeah. Co-star Alexander Knox, who plays Lanyon in this version, was born in 1907 in Ontario, Canada. He was initially a reporter in London, Ontario, before moving to London, England, and acting in British films. (laughs) How do you make that jump, I wonder? He, I guess, acted in university, and then became a reporter, and then became an actor again. Uh, He came to Hollywood in the 1940s, and he received an Academy Award nomination for his role as Woodrow Wilson in the 1944 biopic, Wilson. However... His work as a First Amendment activist landed him in trouble during the McCarthy era, and he retired from acting to become a writer of a series of thriller novels set around the Great Lakes before returning to acting in the 1960s. That sounds awesome. (laughs) The role of Utterson, who is the narrator of the novel but rarely used in film versions, is played here by Lester Matthews who we will recall from The Invisible Man's Revenge, The Mysterious Doctor, The Raven, and Werewolf of London. I will take your word for it, because I don't remember who he is at all. (laughs) So, the film's writer, Edward Hubsch, was a communist sympathizer. And during the promotional lead-up to the film's release, he was subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. And he decided... To flee to Mexico. Sure. So, Columbia attempted to get his name removed from the film's credits, but the Writers Guild of America ruled in Hubsch's favor. To avoid injury to his career, Charles Rogers willingly had his name removed from the credits, leaving the film with no credited producer and cutting Rogers' comeback short until 1957, when he would produce a series of television shorts entitled Men, Women, and Clothes, before dying in a car accident that same year. Oh, shit. Hubsch, meanwhile, returned to the U.S. after HUAC declared that avoiding subpoenas was not illegal, but he was blacklisted from the industry. The Son of Dr. Jekyll was released on October 31st, 1951. Ooh, Halloween. To mild critical and commercial success. That's honestly more than I expected. But it has become a relatively obscure film because it has never been released on home video. There's no VHS release, DVD, Blu-ray, nada. Uh, It is part of a package of films that Columbia sold to television. So it has been shown on television as like a late night horror movie through the years. And so that's kind of the only way people have had a chance to see it. Um... So, for example, for us to watch it today, we're watching a version that someone has, like, taped off TV. Okay. That'll make it feel more authentic. (laughs) Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. 
you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Son of Dr. Jekyll from 1951, directed by Seymour Friedman. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene. We just finished watching The Son of Dr. Jekyll from 1951, directed by Seymour Friedman. Ben, what did you think? Um, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. I really liked it. Yeah, it, uh, it hit the mark for me. Yeah, it, it, I think it doesn't do what you think it's gonna do, and I think that's to its strength. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, let's talk about what it did do. Sure. So, um, when we start, it's like at the end of a Jekyll and Hyde adaptation. Right, yeah, exactly. Hyde is running through the streets, being chased by a mob after killing his uh, wife, apparently, who is named Jane. He gets chased into his home, and he's frantically trying to make the mixture so he can turn back into Jekyll, but the mob... Burns down the house, throws some Molotov cocktails in there. Um, So to escape the fire, Hyde, who has now turned back into Jekyll, runs to the top window, and he jumps, and he dies. This whole sequence made me feel like it was a little bit... um, I mean, it makes sense so that, like, you can have this prologue to set things up, but it's also a bit of, like, have your cake, eat it too, because it lets them do, like, the, like, all the, like, Hyde running around acrobatics jumping Yeah, he's, like, jumping from roof to roof. That, like, they always do at the end of these movies. Yeah, and they give it to you first thing. Right. You don't have to wait through the whole movie. That's right. Now, uh, we see Jekyll on the sidewalk, dead, and his friends, John Utterson and Dr. Kurt Lanyon, are there, and they're like, oh, what a pity. Utterson says something about, like, he will become a man of legend now. Something about... His legend is now tainted right. with Hyde. Yes. Then, Utterson and Lanyon get a note from a constable asking them to come to Hyde's Soho apartment. Where he killed his wife. Yes, so we get there and Jane's body is being taken out. But, hey, in this closet, she hid from Hyde this little baby. Yeah. Who looks to be, like, under a year but yeah. like more than just like freshly born. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. Um, Lanyon being a bachelor is like, what what do I do with babies? And Utterson, who has a wife but is childless, takes on the baby and raises him to become Edward. Um, so that whole preamble is set in eighteen sixty, and then the rest of the film is set thirty years later in eighteen ninety, and we looked up during the movie the novel was published in, like, 1886 or something. Yeah. So they're setting this sequel-ish after the publication of the regular book. But, Ben, you made a point that if they had done, like, 30 years after 1890, Mm -hmm. it's war times. Yeah. Or at the very least, after war times. Because I was sort of confused as to why, like, they had moved Jekyll's story back in time to 1860. Um, so that was my initial theory was like, well, 
1886 plus 30 years gets you 1916, which is World War One, and that would get, like, a little hard to explain, like, why you can do this story when there's a war on. But my other theory now is also that maybe Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde book was published in the world of this movie, because when we come oh. into the movie in 1890, the story of Jekyll and Hyde is well known mm-hmm. by, like, everybody. Yeah, so much so that, like, Jekyll's scientific and medical um, breakthroughs aren't even considered. It's just, he was a monster. Yeah, the things he did as Hyde have overshadowed his legitimate accomplishments. Yeah. Um, but it's 30 years later, Edward is 30, and he is a student at the Royal Science Academy, but he's being expelled for doing weird science. <laughs> you don't really know anything beyond that. At this point, he proposes to his girlfriend, uh, Lynn, who is actually Utterson's niece. So it's clear then that Utterson raised Edward as, like, you're my foster kid. You're not, um, yeah. we're not pretending that you are my blood kid. Yeah. Which is why it's, like, but, cool that he's with the niece. Right. Like, I'm just saying. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know who his real parents are. Um, but with this engagement, Lanyon and Utterson are like, okay, well, we, we gotta tell him now. We gotta tell him sometime. Guess we'll tell him now. Now, Lanyon has been managing the Jekyll estate up to this point, and because of the infamy around the name, he thinks that Edward should sign for the estate to continue to be managed by Lanyon, all of it to go to Edward once Lanyon passes. Um, he's not, like, on his deathbed, but, you know, he's older. Just so that way Edward stays out of the papers. Yeah, Lanyon's rationale is, like, Edward is his beneficiary as well, so, like, why not just wait until he kicks it and Edward gets everything at that point? Yeah, and presumably he's getting an allowance, so he's not, like, penniless right yeah. now. Yeah, But Edward decides, nope, I'm gonna try to, like, show people that he wasn't a monster, you know, I'm not a monster, I'm just a man, and try to dispel these myths and legends around around this name. So he moves into the mansion and spruces it up. Now, people are still afraid of Edward because of the stories around Jekyll and the deranged Hyde. Um, there are a couple times where, like, a newspaper man sneaks into the house and takes a photo of Edward attacking him. Edward thinks he's attacking, like, a like a thief. Yeah, like he didn't know that it was in the middle of the night. He didn't yeah, know the guy of course. was there. Um, and then there's another incident where the press hire a little boy to throw rocks through the window, and when Edward comes out to give the kid a stern talking to, um, they take photos at the worst moment. Yeah, it doesn't help Edward that he has a temper. Yes. Right? And so he can be goaded really easily, and this temper comes out like several times over the movie. And the interesting thing here is that um, at least, like, I don't know if you got a different impression, Sarah, but the impression I got from what they were talking about, it seems that the general thought of the public is that his father was a maniac, that he was, like, insane, and, you know, therefore there's a chance that, like, Edward has inherited that as and is insane. But the idea that his father... Like, that the drug actually worked. That he was literally two different people, and therefore his father wasn't responsible for his crimes. That isn't believed. Yes, that is what I got for sure. Um, 
Now, the story that Lanyon tells Edward is that Jekyll um, was a psychologist like Lanyon and was doing experiments to find a way to better treat mental patients who are dealing with anger or trauma and basically like split that trauma or that anger away so they could better deal with their lives. Lanyon adds that because these theories were laughed at, Jekyll went under Hyde's name as a pseudonym to live and continue his experiments without ridicule. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether we as the audience believe that is up to us, because this is just what we're being told. Yeah, what Lanyon tells him is true, from a certain point of view. <laughs> sure. But it does leave room for you to go like, well, how do, how would that fit with the past adaptations we've seen? And, mm-hmm. and whatever. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure, in the discussion. Because Edward's name is being put into the papers, Jekyll's old butler named Michael comes back and he's like, hey, can I have my old job back? And Edward's like, cool, he worked for my dad. Sounds great. So Edward is like, okay, I'm going to prove that my dad's theories were real. I'm going to prove that he wasn't insane. Um, And I'm going to prove that we are just men, not monsters. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Lanyon gives Edward Jekyll's notes Edward starts to work almost obsessively over these notes. And we also see at this point a man sneak into the house and swap out some compound that Edward was working on. When Edward comes in the next day, he uses this compound. And um, the solution he makes is reacting the way it should in the notes. got all the smoke and foam coming off of it. Yeah, it's bubbling the right color. So he's like, okay, well... I'm going to drink this. And Michael's, uh, the butler, he's like, I don't think you should do that. And Edward's like, leave me alone. It's the only way. So he does it. He drinks it. And we see him, like, writing scientific notes about it. And his hand suddenly goes super hairy. And then he faints. The next thing we know, Edward is inviting um, his father's doctor friends, um, family friends, even the press, to present this experiment and drink the solution in front of them to show that his father's theories were correct. But during the presentation, the solution he makes using his own compound, not mysterious man's compound, the experiment fails. And so he's angry and he runs off. Now, as Edward is starting to get into these experiments, we see Lanyon place a letter in Edward's mail that is from the Cyrils. And these are people who are writing to Edward because they knew his mother, Jane. And they want to meet with Edward to tell him about his mother. And they do that. It goes fairly well. But when Edward is leaving his experiment presentation, he runs into one of the serials and he's like, Hey, uh, we found one of your mother's scrapbooks. Do you want to come see it? And Edward says yes. So they go. And the serials are all like old actor types because his mother in this version was like a... Was in the theater. Yeah, a music hall actress or something like that. While he's at the Cyril's, um, he does get drunk because he's, like, frustrated. And as he's on his way back home, there's a mob outside his house and a constable approaches him. Turns out the kid that threw the rock through his window was beaten that night and claims that it was Edward who did it. Claims that it was Hyde who did it, more specifically. Um, in any case, Edward is uh, taken in. And um, quickly put to trial. And during the trial, 
The Cyrils lie about the time that Edward left. He says he left after the beating, but the Cyrils are saying that he left before the beating. Edward is put under medical observation by Lanyon at his sanatorium to prove whether he's insane or not. Now, Edward probably doesn't do the best thing and sneaks out and tracks the Cyrils down to outside London. Um, one of the Cyrils, a woman named Hazel, um, sneaks him a note saying, I'll explain later, but we need to meet tonight away from my family. Edward discovers this note in the carriage with Lanyon. He's like, okay, well, clearly I need to go meet Hazel. Don't you think, Lanyon? And Lanyon's like, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Help clear this up. So we see Hazel go up to the Cyril's old place in London, and um, she's about to light the gaslight. And then a man, a mysterious figure, comes out and uh, attacks her. Edward comes in to the building just as Hazel screams, runs up, finds her dead, and sees a cloaked figure run out the back door. Now the landlord and other people in the building come in, and they see Edward, and he, like, <laughs> runs off. So he's chasing the cloaked figure, and the mob is chasing him. But Edward manages to escape the mob, but does lose the cloaked figure. The one glimpse we get of this cloaked figure's face, he looks like he might be Hyde. Yeah. Yeah, he has, um, the way that they're doing Hyde is, uh, a little, um, simian. Yeah. Or at the very least, like... A mild version of the, like, Frederick March version. Like, a halfway point between the Frederick March version and the Spencer Tracy version. Yeah. Edward, having nowhere else to go, makes his way to trusty butler Michael. Mm -hmm. To Michael's place. Um, and there... He goes, oh, the cloaked figure must have been Lanyon. He's the only person who knew I was going there and who knew Hazel would be there. And Michaels is like, I, I, I don't know, man. This is all over my pay grade. Like, what is happening? In this conversation, Edward mentions some of the materials that he uses in Jekyll's experiments. And Michaels says, no, um, what about this one compound called Arcanon? Yeah, I... Arcanite? It's not... Oh, that's a Pokemon. That's a Pokemon. It's not either of those, but yeah, it's like some made-up drug name. Yeah. And Edward goes, that wasn't in the notes. Those notes were a fake. It was a copy that Lanyon made and gave to me that left out that key compound. Michaels, go... Get those notes. Go get Lynn, my fiance, so she can be in this movie, and then go get my notes from the lab. So Michaels goes and does that. Um, and as he's getting Lynn, Lanyon is there with reporters being like, here's my medical opinion, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Lynn, where are you going? Oh, to get uh, the notes Edward wants. And he goes, oh, I actually have the notes. I took them from Edward's lab and have them in my study, so you can take those to him. Lynn and Michaels bring these notes to Edward, and there's mention of Arcanite. <laughs> and he's like, these are the real notes. I was given a fake. <laughs> so he runs to go to his lab to get the fake copy. Because if he can show that he was using a fake copy, like, he can prove that he was set up and specifically like by Lanyon, right? Yes. He needs he needs proof that Lanyon's been the one kind of manipulating him the whole time. And just as he gets to his lab, um Lanyon is in there trying to burn them. 
As we learned from the prologue, this whole lab is highly flammable. <laughs> so they um, have a confrontation, and Lanyon explains that I stood by Jekyll the first time when he was doing the experiments and lost all professional credence and career momentum because of it. So I've been using the Jekyll estate and the money to get where I ought to be. So this is why Lanyon wanted to keep the estate under his name, mm -hmm. um, why he didn't want Edward to have direct access to it. If Edward was shown to be insane, then again the estate would go back to Lanyon, etc., yeah. etc. So this has all been, like, every step of the way, Lanyon trying to, A, manipulate public opinion mm -hmm. around Edward to be hostile, and then B cause, like, Edward to doubt his own sanity and act out in ways that would, like, reinforce that same public opinion. Yeah. Edward has a moment of, like, you've been using the formula then, and Lanyon's like, I don't need a formula to create a monster. I use public opinion. Yeah, the, the line is, um, all I need to create a monster is half a pound of paint and some hysteria. Yeah, it's great. It's a good line. Um, but as they are fighting during this confrontation, the chemicals explode in the struggle, and Edward gets knocked out. Lanyon goes to race out, uh, with the whole house just completely going up in flame. Um, now these flames have attracted a mob, so Lanyon goes to get out through the front door, and the mob goes, There's the monster! There, get him! And they start throwing things at him, so he can't escape that way, so he heads up to the top floor, out the window... And falls to his death. Just like Jekyll at the start of the movie. Meanwhile, dedicated, loyal butler, Michaels, comes in and rescues Edward and gets him out of the burning house. Um, and Edward gets to show the constable or the lieutenant or whoever, um, look, the copy notes and the real notes, Lanyon set me up, blah, blah, blah. And then the film ends with text saying that the Jekyll and Hyde legend died with Lanyon, and the notes are now in the proper custody of Scotland Yard. <laughs> in their bizarre crimes file. Yes. In Scotland Yard's X-Files. <laughs> so that's the movie. Yeah. So I do appreciate that at the end we learn that Lanyon has not been a reliable narrator. Mm -hmm. So the story that he tells Edward of, like, how, his, how Jekyll's story was is not necessarily something we can take for granted right? and take as fact. So that means that this could be a reasonable follow-up to any of the earlier Jekyll films. Yeah, Edward Jekyll proves that the serum was real, which proves that, you know, Jekyll and Hyde was a scientific creation, not just Jekyll going mad. And the thing that's sort of interesting about the story here that's a little bit hard to um you kind of have to like pay close attention to all the implications is that his mother uh called jane in this version is the hyde love interest not the jekyll love interest like it's kind of obvious by the fact that like oh well she was this like low-class actress in soho who like lived in this you know weird little flat that like wasn't Jekyll's house, yeah. right? Because he's running from that flat to his house at the start. So they're not trying to say that she was, like, his, like, official society Listen. wife, you know? <laughs> um, but, like, it's a little bit hard to kind of follow it because we get... The version that Lanyon tells us is that, like, oh, yeah, Hyde was this 
pseudonym that he used living with Edward's mom in Soho, right? Which is, like, again, certain point of view style (laughs) true. It also then means that this movie's more consistent than you initially think, because while Hyde never murdered Jekyll's fiance, he did murder, you know, the Hyde love interest character. Ivy is her name in the 31 version. I don't remember what her name was in the 41 version or if it was different. So the only thing that's really kind of a stretch is A, describing her as Jekyll's wife, which like the movie does, but the movie also never gives her name as Jane Jekyll. It's Jane Bartlett or something like that. It's not, you know, because it's not, it's not Jane Hyde either. So it was she his wife? I feel like that's like a code. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Like because we can't just have an out of wedlock kid. Exactly. And we can't like, because in the 31 version, she she's in theater, she's in the musical theater, but she, Ivy is also open to side hustles. Yeah. And so then the only thing that is weird is the kid part of things, but the movie also seems to, as you know, you brought up, imply that the kid was a secret kid. So, you know, maybe this is more compatible with those earlier versions than initially it seems. Yeah, which I thought was neat. Um, I think also with this, I, I was kind of like, oh, great, when Edward was like, I shall use these notes and yeah. go through this and make <laughs> sure, make Prove clear that... that my dad wasn't a a monster and wasn't insane. And yeah, it's like, where have we seen this before? Yeah, we've been here before with the Frankenstein movies from Universal. Over and over yes. and over again. Yeah. And then, like, they don't go the way that you think it's going to go. Like, he he does prove, sort of, things to the mysterious man, who is clearly Lanyon, by the way. I tried to keep it mysterious in the plot summary. It's clearly Lanyon. If we can see it in this, like, bad... VHS that we watch, like, it's Lanyon. Um, But he does prove it, and then it's not like him going through the same beats as the Jekyll and Hyde story. It's a a conspiracy around that. Yeah, he transforms, like, one time, and it's not even, like, a big deal set piece in the movie. I mean, the, the effects on the transformation are actually pretty cool, but it's just you see his hand... And that's it's it. suddenly hairy. Like, it, it does a really good job, but probably because they can just focus on a hand. Mm-hmm. It's a really good, intelligent movie. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really excellently written script. And the thing that, you know, you don't see coming is the script is actually about paranoia and, like, witch hunts and being tried in the court of public opinion. And all of that really comes into focus when you know that the writer was blacklisted for being a communist. Absolutely. Like, a lot of... this is the age of Hewa. Yeah, so a lot of, like, what this movie is trying to do suddenly clicks into place when you know that, and they start talking about, like, you know, how he's having to fight against the legend of Jekyll and how that has impugned his own reputation, and, you know, you, you, you can't... What was the thing? There was a good line about, like, you can't avoid a legend, you have to kill it, or something like that. And yeah, just all the stuff about like how it's all kind of the press's fault, and um, when he is being like hounded by the press, you know, and he's talking to his fiance, and he has a line, something along the lines of like, witch hunts have always been popular pastimes, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. 
yeah, like even just on a technical level, the writing is really well done um, with the parallels of like the opening and the ending. Mm -hmm. um, but even just like the way that it, it crafts the conspiracy, because it's not if if you didn't see Lanyon placing the letter or being in the lab, mm -hmm. um, I think it would be a very good twist for Lanyon to end up being the bad guy at the end. Like, a believable twist where, like, looking back, you, you could be like, oh, yeah, it would have been him. But in the moment, you could have had it where you did not know either way. As it is, it creates a dramatic irony where this character that, you know, Edward trusts, we know, isn't trustworthy, yeah. right? Um, yeah, divorced from the HUAC context, it's still a really smart, unique version of this kind of story. You know, you brought up the Frankenstein thing, and that's exactly what this movie should not have done and didn't, right? Like, because it would have been so easy for, as you said, for it to just repeat the beats of the original Jekyll and Hyde just with the kid. And I feel like that's what most sequels do, is yeah. find a way to retell the original and what this movie does is find a really interesting way of saying okay well if the setup is x you know what follows from that you know what yeah. what makes sense as a follow-up from that rather than how do we manipulate events to get us back to the original again yeah it's like if you were to look at comparing dracula's daughter and son of dracula mm. dracula's daughter tries to do something new but ends up falling into the same old Dracula's best hits, mm -hmm. where Son of Dracula tries to do a whole new spin, whether it's successful or not, you can listen to that episode on it, but um, it's interesting to think about how people are doing these sequels <laughs> based on, like, the main character or villain's ch child, yeah. and how they are dealing with it, the inheritance of this name. Like, Son of Frankenstein deals with those issues, but ultimately it's still a movie about, you know, and so is, uh, Frankenstein's ghost, ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're all movies about bringing the monster back. Yeah. Right. All derivative. Right. Whereas, um, like son of Dr. Jekyll is, is doing a new spin, not even a new spin. It's just a whole new angle. Yes. Yeah, because it's just telling a new story altogether, yeah. which is really cool for a movie that is, you know, derivative, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think Lewis Hayward gives a really great performance as Edward Jekyll. Um, he is very, like, believably, like, an intelligent young man who has a temper and who kind of gets increasingly harried over the course of the movie, right, to the point where the fact that he's being framed like makes sense like it, it because the the situations that Lanyon contrives to uh put Edward in are like believable that like you know people would would kind of lose their cool over right like he sets up that Jekyll has a temper and then that gets demonstrated to the press over and over again who are kind of prodding the bear just to get that reaction so they can get the good pictures and stuff so they can have that angle for their stories but then because that's been set up in the public uh opinion 
when, you know, the kid gets beaten or Hazel gets found dead or whatever and he's near the scene, it's believable that people go like, oh shit, he definitely did it, right? And yeah, it's just a really good example of, like, mob mentality. Yeah, it's kind of like what Vampire Bat was going for way yeah. back when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this does it better, ironically. Much better. Well, because there isn't actually... A vampire. <laughs> like a, a mad scientist with a sponge in a jar at the core of it, right? Like, yeah. it is just all mob mentality being manipulated by Lanyon. Speaking of which, Alexander Knox, I think, also does a very good job as Lanyon playing that character so that everything he's saying and doing can be read both ways. Yeah, he's not, like, twirling a mustache mm-hmm. or anything. Um, even though the audience, like, we see that he's, like, doing things. You don't really understand why um, until the end, but you see that he's doing things and you can go, like, well, why would he do that? He's not being sly about it or, or like, trying to be evil about it. He's just kind of doing these things, so maybe he's just doing it for the greater good? Like, yeah, you, what is he doing? You know that even though Lanyon seems to be up to something, you don't know that that makes him the villain. Yes. Because there's no reason in uh, his other scenes to, like, ex- suspect that. So you're just kind of waiting to figure out the mystery of why is Lanyon doing this. Um, yeah, I do just want to, similar to what Ben said, call out Lewis Hayward for good acting. I was skeptical when I heard his age and mm-hmm. having to be aged down through makeup, um, but he actually does it fairly well. He's believable, and I think what also makes it work that he plays his father is we don't really see his father super well. Yeah, it's always at like a distance. It's at a distance, with fire everywhere, yeah. a mob around, and the only time we get like a good image of his face is when he's dead, and they're putting a blanket over him. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know if the sort of youthful appearance for Hayward would hold up as well if we were able to see, like, a restored 4K copy or something. But as it stands, I was able to suspend my disbelief that this 50-year-old was 30. Yeah. He's like a balding 30-year-old, you know? <laughs> like, it, it still works. I know 30-year-olds who are balding. Sure. Um... Yeah, this film is paced well. Um, there, it doesn't feel like there's any kind of like dilly dallying or repeated no. plot points like you see with a lot of B movies. Um, it's shot very well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much money they spent on this, but probably because it's a period piece, they had to spend a little bit. It had a three week shooting schedule too, so like they put some time in. Yeah, and I, I think it shows. You know, it's not a like week in, week out. Uh, Bride of the Gorilla situation. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I think that they've succeeded in what they were trying to do here. I think it absolutely fits in with, like, the Universal Monster franchises that they're kind of, like, cashing in on a mm-hmm. little bit. Unfortunately, while it is really good, it isn't horror. I wanted to talk about that because, yeah, when I was looking at ranking, I had a spot kind of picked out. Uh-huh. But I was also like, I don't know if, like, is it feeling like horror to me because it's going off of the Jekyll and Hyde story? There's like a conspiracy and mystery here. There's a bit of a thriller element to it. And I I honestly couldn't tell if that thriller element was making this film more thriller or horror 
But yeah, what what are your reasons for considering this not horror? So I think like it's it's about how the story is emphasized in a lot of ways yeah. and how they choose to have Jekyll react to what's happening to him. Um, because while this is a story about Lanyon gaslighting Jekyll into thinking he's mad, um, and we've seen versions of that story as a horror story, like going all the way back to like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, right? Um, ultimately, Jekyll doesn't let that consume him. He's His very fo- active. He's very active. His focus is on like, well, no, this is all bullshit. I'm going to prove this all wrong. So... Honestly, there were points where the movie actually edged close to film noir, in my opinion, because it's got that emphasis on, like, the threat of the past and, like, having to deal with the evils of the past and move past them. And then, like, the conspiracy of paranoia around the lead character. Um, The reason it's not film noir is because the lead character like wins at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if Jekyll had died in the fire and along with Lanyon and no one will ever know the truth, that's film noir. Right. Um, but because ultimately what we have here is like the equivalent of like a mistaken identity protagonist who's like on the run and like having to prove that he's not who people think he is and like clear his name, uh, you know, because he's being hounded by the authorities, This is much more, like, standard mystery thriller, right? Like, this is much more in the line of, like, what Hitchcock was kind of doing around this time. Like, this is... This is the Victorian fugitive. (laughs) Right? Where, like... I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. (laughs) My my dad didn't kill his wife. (laughs) I don't care. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. So that's, that's kind of where I came down on this was like, because it's ultimately about him like doing all this stuff to clear his name and then like confronting Lanyon and like defeating him and then like getting everything cleared up. Like it doesn't really have a strong horror angle because like Jekyll isn't really super phased by what's like happening to him. He's fighting back against it. And so like quite purposefully. Right. And so it has that same feeling of like, um, you know, any number of Hitchcock movies where the lead character is mistaken for someone else and then has to run North around. Northwest. Right, exactly, yeah. This doesn't have any kind of, like, airplane in, like, the cornfield <laughs> or anything. I kept wanting this to be... to feel more like The Trial. Like Orson right. Welles' Trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would have been horror-y. Like, if yeah, we had exactly. leaned into this that feeling of persecution. Yeah, I think that that would have been really cool. Or, like, even if... Edward had survived the fire, but the notes had gotten burned Right, up. yeah. So there's no way to clear his name, and mm-hmm. there's no way to clear his father's name. Yes. I think um, then it could have, like, been a bit more ambiguous as to whether this was horror or not. Mm-hmm. But for the whole film, I think you make a really great point of how active he is. Like, even to the point where he's like, yeah, man, this has been really messing with my brain. Maybe I'll take this sedative you gave me, Dr. Lanyon. Not, I'm going to dump it in the plant and sneak out of the sanatorium. Yeah, and he has, like, multiple fist fights with dudes throughout this movie, yeah, too. Yeah, that was which, a little, like, little much. Like, that is something that kind of tends to make things feel less like horror and more like other genres when people <laughs> have fist fights. Catman of Paris has a pretty good fist fight in that <laughs> horror. Yeah, but yeah. Catman of Paris is a singular entity and should not be counted. <laughs> okay. 
yeah, I think this works. If you were curious... Oh, yeah. I started looking at Son of Dracula at 37. Fair. Um, and was like, no, this is below that. And then I kind of stopped around the Wolf of the Melvineers at number 50. Because, again, it's like aiming for that universal feel. Right. And, yeah, so I thought it was kind of comparable. And right around there are the houses Frankenstein and Dracula, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. And kind of the spot I was feeling good about, if we were to rank it, was below the um, House of Dracula, but above Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at 46. Uh, Yeah, sure. But having talked this out, I do think um, that we can consider the son of Dr. Jekyll on the miscellaneous list. Yeah, it's a really good early example of a sequel to a horror movie that isn't horror, where like it's been taken into another genre by the needs of the story. Yeah. But like good on them for following that and yeah. not just like trying to like force it back in where they want it to be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the marketing department definitely did. The biggest thing on the poster is Hyde's face and like we see Hyde's face uh, I believe a grand total of twice in this movie both in long shots from far away for like half a second yeah so um but I mean that helps with the conspiracy part sure of yeah all right well folks if you want to see that list you can go to our website screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com there you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today as well as our appeals box if you would like to contest this or any other ranking or any other films on the miscellaneous list that you think we should reconsider as horror, drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you find good podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. To help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on your podcasting app of choice, particularly on Apple Podcasts, uh, star ratings, reviews. They all help the show out quite a bit because they feed into the algorithm that controls all of our lives. Another way that you can help the show out is by spreading the word uh, on social media. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts' audiences to grow, So talking about the show on Twitter, on Tumblr, on other social media platforms uh, is a great thing to do. If you have the means and would like to help the show out more directly, we would appreciate it if you headed to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. Uh, Patrons at higher levels get access to special bonus content. Um, and if we hit our Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will begin to do once a month special bonus episodes on horror-adjacent films, which is a film like Son of Dr. Jekyll. Or even Hitchcock. Right. Everyone likes to say he's the, like, king of horror, and it's like, no, he's the king of thrillers, right. guys. Or, uh, you know, to give another example of a sequel to a horror movie that isn't horror, Aliens, right? Yeah. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week um, we're going from the sequel to a Robert Louis Stevenson story to an adaptation of a Robert Louis Stevenson story. It's The Strange Door 
and it's from Universal International and stars Charles Lawton and Boris Karloff. Charles Lawton? I don't think we've seen him since um, The Old Dark House or... Um, Island of Lost Souls. Island of Lost Souls, yeah. yeah it's been a while. For sure. Yeah. And uh, this is the first time Lawton and Karloff have been together since Old Dark House. Yeah, cool. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.